Well, I do have some information to cover this morning. I decided we would go ahead and finish uh, Galatians today. And um, it hasn't been that much of a long time coming, right? It's okay. So, but yeah, we're going to finish today. So uh, if, if you're able, please stand uh, for the reading of, of God's Word. Uh, as always, I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse 11. And we'll read all the way to the end, to verse 18. Paul's personality just really comes out. He says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand? Exclamation point. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And um, it's good. And it's good for us, Lord, not just to learn it, as James would tell us, but to walk in it. We thank you for all that has been communicated to us, Lord, through the book of Galatians. Uh, All of the warnings, all of the encouragement. And uh, Lord, I just pray that whatever else you want to accomplish, in the conclusion of, of this epistle, Lord, that you do that in our hearts, our minds, Lord, in our, our church, and uh, yeah, that we would just walk more closely to you, being able to identify, Lord, error in our lives, error in doctrine, and um, that we would be more committed to the gospel. So thank you, Lord. Lord, we also pray for um, <clears throat> Barry, especially as he continues to struggle a little bit in the hospital. Pray that his lungs would, would clear and uh, that he could return home and, and be with people. And as he's not able to see anyone right now, I just pray that he would have sweet fellowship with your spirit. So, Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's look back at verse 11. Uh, It's too bad that the large letters were not retained over the years uh, from uh, transcribing the scriptures. Uh, We don't know if the large letters were just large or if they were capital letters. Uh, But they were large, whatever they were. And... uh, so here, you know, Paul, he penned uh, this particular letter, or at least the last section of the, the chapter. But oftentimes, and for whatever reason, Paul would actually dictate the entire content of his letters to a scribe. And we don't know why that is. Um, there may be some indication here with his comments, I don't know. Uh, but, for example, in the epistle to the Romans, we find this comment, it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, uh, greet you in the Lord. That's Romans 16, 22. So Tertius was the scribe who Paul uh, had right as he spoke. Uh, we see other things like this in 1 Corinthians 16, 21, and Colossians 4, 18, 2 Thessalonians 3, 17. We find uh, in those places, we find Paul's personal salutation with his own hand. So for example, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, he says, This salutation by my own hand, which is a sign 
in every epistle, so I write. That's 2 Thessalonians 3.17. So the implication is that a scribe wrote the body of the letter, and then Paul would put his signature on it, and it seems that uh, the churches knew his signature for whatever reason. And, uh, but maybe his handwriting was like a doctor's, and uh, so he didn't write. It's, it's bad enough when people don't understand what you're saying, uh, but then if they can't uh, discern your, your, um, your handwriting, it's bad enough. But for whatever reason, here in the, the epistle to the Galatians, he either penned the whole thing, which would be a long letter for him to pen in large letters, or he's just referring to this last section. Uh, in verse 11, you know, there that comment, see with what large letters I've written to you. Now, of course, everybody speculates as to why he would write with large letters. Um, so let's speculate just for a moment, but not, we don't want to get too deep in speculation. Some have thought that Paul had poor eyesight, and so that if he was going to read his own handwriting uh, to know what he's writing, he'd have to write with big letters. Uh, as I said, maybe it's just that he, he, he had terrible handwriting and uh, wanted to do a service to those he was writing to. Um, and, or uh, some of us suggested that he wanted to emphasize this conclusion uh, that he's coming to at the end of the section. Now, uh, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, I have typically thought that it was because he had bad eyesight, because Paul mentions uh, to them that, hey, you would have even have gouged your own eyes out and given them to me, which implies there is something wrong with Paul's eyes. It's possible. Uh, I don't really know, <clears throat> but I don't want to get too drawn down into the, to, to that in speculation, get distracted from what God wants to tell us in the rest of the letter. So let's go to verse 12. Paul just jumps right into it. Uh, he has not shied away from attacking the Judaizers, uh, and now he's getting right after their motives. He says, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these, these people, would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. And then he goes on, he says, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. So what's going on here? So as we've looked at the body of the whole epistle, these Jewish false teachers... We have called them the Judaizers. They were compelling these Christian Jew uh, Gentiles to be circumcised. And then Paul kind of explains why they would do that. He says they were motivated by two things. The first one is fame, and the second one is fear. Fame and fear. Their motive for fame is mentioned at the beginning of verse 12, and then again at the end of verse 13. <clears throat> it was, a, Paul says, a show in the flesh, showing off in the flesh, as it were, Verse 12a, and it was occasion to boast. That's 13b at the end there. Uh, these kinds of people, um, I think it's safe to say they're pretty lousy people. That They would use people in such a way. It wasn't for the spiritual uh, well-being well of the Gentiles, uh, but it was just for bragging rights. Bragging rights. Okay. It was for their scoreboard. But he also says that they are motivated by fear. That's mentioned in Verse 12, uh, 12b, now if I say 12a, uh, I just mean the beginning of the text, and that's why it's troublesome when you have a really long text, because then you have a, b, c, and d, uh, but typically it's a and b, b, the end of the text. He says they wanted to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. The source of their fear was the Jewish community, the Jewish community who was watching their every move, 
to see if these Jews were legit. The question is, how so? You see, if a Gentile was going to be converted to the God of the Bible, which to them meant being converted to Judaism, they would need to be circumcised. Otherwise, he would remain outside the covenant of Israel, and the Gentile would still be as good as a pagan. Well, these Judaizers, uh, who were Jewish themselves, wanted to please the Jews by kind of playing both sides. They wanted Jesus as their Messiah, but they also wanted circumcision in the law of Moses. But if they were converting Gentiles, they would need to be circumcising them. If they did not, they would be persecuted by the local Jews who would shun them, or worse, okay, for not being loyal to the covenant. But if they got the Gentiles circumcised, they could boast about it to their Jewish buddies, and they could put up one on the scoreboard for themselves. Now that is a sad motive. Sad motive. Fear and fame. And perhaps you're wondering, can you be motivated by fame and fear at the same time? I think it's two of the most common motives for why people do things. Uh, you know, pastors, uh, they're motivated by these. Uh, they're infatuated with numbers. Maybe you've met one of those guys. Uh, the number of people coming to their church. The number of people who made professions of faith. The number of people who got baptized. The number of dollars that came in the offering. The number of people listening online. The number of likes on YouTube. The number of compliments they get after their sermon. Pastors are intoxicated with fame and recognition. It motivates them to do what they do. Uh, but they're also motivated by fear. They're motivated by fear in the way people think of them. They're afraid to stand in opposition to the demands of culture. They're afraid to teach certain portions and subjects in the Bible to their congregation. They're afraid to confront sinners in the church. They're often afraid because it will diminish the numbers that they're intoxicated by, right? Celebrities do this. Musicians do this. People that are in front of people do this. So like these Judaizers, instead of serving Christ, they're serving their reputation, and they were serving the things that they were afraid of. And then Paul says it created uh, a typical or a common hypocrisy in them. He says in verse 13, these circumcised Judaizers who so preached the law of Moses, they did not keep the law of Moses themselves. And Jesus says that even about the Pharisees, doesn't he? He says, not even you keep the law. It's typical. They were demanding that the Gentiles be circumcised, keep the law of Moses, but... They, like the Pharisees, they wouldn't lift their fingers to help them do any of those things. Okay? Just fooling themselves. Yeah. I think the worst form of hypocrisy is always going to be religious hypocrisy. Amen? Yeah. Verse 14, <clears throat> Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Now, uh, depending on which translation you have, uh, you notice that the, that statement differs uh, from what I read. The New King James says, God forbid at the beginning of the verse, but that's actually a paraphrase. Uh, actually, maybe not even a paraphrase. It's more like artistic liberty uh, there. Uh, the, the original language does not have the word God, uh, nor does it have forbid. So, why have the translators retained this from the King James? I think it's strange, seeing that the same phrase is in Romans 6, 2, and it's omitted. So I don't know, maybe the, the board should have got together a little closer. The King James says, God forbid, in Romans 6, 2, uh, but the New King James translators there 
actually went with the Greek, which says, certainly not, certainly not. It's kind of a strange thing. Um, the, the Greek phrase is the same in both passages. May ginomai, may it never be, certainly not. It's also interesting to me uh, because those who, and perhaps you've run into them, they believe that the King James Version is the only real, legitimate, genuinely inspired version of the Bible. Um, and they say that the, the King James Version never employs any paraphrases or artistic liberty. Uh, well, for your reference, the King James does in Romans 6.2 and in Galatians 6.14. Paul did not say, God forbid. He said, may it never be. So, it turns out that the King James uh, has to take its place among uh, the other translations of the Bible. A good translation. Uh, I love the translation, but it's not a perfect one. Now, with that said, I do think uh, the artistic liberty is fine as long as everyone understands the figure of speech, God forbid, which back in 1611, everyone did. Okay. Uh, Bible commentator William Newell says that the phrase expresses Paul's holy horrification for such a thing. It's holy horrification. And that's exactly right. But the phrase is not, God forbid, is not really used today. Uh, I can't even remember the last time that I've heard it. And um, if we use it today, someone might not grasp the meaning. And I think our translations uh, should be translated in such a way that people go, oh, I understand. Amen? I understand. Yeah. Paul, in this passage, he's saying, may it never occur that I should ever be found boasting <clears throat> in anything but the cross. But it also implied that Paul is horrified by the thought of using people as a means to his own glory and recognition and reputation. Okay, he's saying this in opposition to what the Judaizers were doing. They were boasting in their own accomplishments. But Paul was all about boasting in the accomplishments of Christ at Calvary. That's what that was all about for him. Paul preached the gospel for the glory of Christ and for the salvation of others. And then Paul says that it was by the cross that the world was crucified to me. And he says, and I was crucified to the world. The, the declaration essentially means that I have nothing to do with the world and the world has nothing to do with me. And it's a jab at the Judaizers. They're all about the world and the things in the world. He says, but I've died to the world the world has died to me. We are dead to each other because of the cross of Christ. My motives can be different because of the cross of Christ. I'm different because of the cross of Christ. And people's lives are being changed for the same reason. Through the cross, I have abandoned worldly interests. And the world no longer has a grip on me. These people were imposing religious rites and rituals for worldly gain, for worldly fame. <clears throat> Paul, on the other hand, he just genuinely loved people, genuinely loved them. He wanted Christ to be exalted in the world. Verse 15, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. A new creation. So Paul, of course, is saying that it makes no difference if you're circumcised, a circumcised Jew, or you're an uncircumcised Gentile. In this new covenant, there is no value in Old Covenant rituals. There's just no spiritual advantage to them at all. The only thing that matters in the Christian faith is that you've become a new creation in Christ, which he's taught elsewhere. It takes place only by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit the moment that someone puts their faith in Christ. And this is all the same way of saying the only thing that is really important 
is that you're born again. Okay, born again, regenerate, regeneration, uh, quickened, as Peter uses it, they all mean the same thing. Jesus said that unless you are born again, he actually says it, I think it's in verse 3 of John 3, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. And then in John 3, 5, he says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Must be born again. But the Judaizers came to the Galatian churches and they told the believers there who were already born again that it was all for nothing. It was all for nothing until you were circumcised according to the law of Moses. And Paul's saying, no, that's, that's ridiculous. The only thing that matters is that you're a new creation, that the Holy Spirit has made your spirit alive to God through faith in Christ. His work in the new covenant makes void the necessity of circumcision. And all the men said, Amen. That's right. Uh, we saw this in Acts 15. Uh, all the apostles got together to, to determine whether or not circumcision was necessary in New Covenant regeneration. All of them, and it says, with the Holy Spirit, said, no, it's nonsense. Okay. Circumcision, as the author of Hebrews talks about uh, in an indirect way, Hebrews 8.13, that the circumcision has been made obsolete along with the Old Covenant. <clears throat> it's done. So circumcision is not, um, it's not really a, a doctrine that, or a heresy, we might say, that affects this community, right? I haven't heard anybody say, I think I should be circumcised. Um, but the church today, uh, if it's not being haunted by some Jewish thing that was made obsolete by the blood of Christ, we are being haunted by a host of other things, right? That's true. It's not circumcision, uh, but there's plenty for us to avoid today. There's, there's millions of things that haunt the church, it seems. The modern heretic uh, just seems to uh, go about inventing things that he can uh, hamper the church with. Yeah, the latest of which is uh, the, the Christianizing of what we call DEI. How many of you guys are familiar with DEI? That's a beautiful thing. Let me educate you, just in case you come across it. You'll know it now. It's diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Yeah. Diversity, equity, inclusivity. This is quickly becoming the doctrine that guides the direction, the decision-making, the philosophy of the Western church uh, rather than the scriptures. Um, I'm seeing it applied in every major denomination. It's in their vision statement, and it's dictating the way that they do things. Uh, this is going to have to be addressed further uh, as it continues to infect both our culture and the churches in the West. I told my Thursday night group a couple weeks ago, when I was sick, you have nothing to do. So I decided I would start reading the general conferences, statements of faith of you know, a variety of different uh, denominations. And what I'm coming across all the time is the reason that the, they're doing things the way they are has nothing to do with the direction of the scriptures, uh, especially the pastoral epistles, but it has everything to do with being diverse and equitable and inclusive. And uh, so it, it doesn't matter about biblical qualifications. It doesn't matter about biblical mandates. It's all about being, uh, it's, it's all about fitting in with the culture. And so the culture is, you know, it's closing in on the church and the church is saying yes to the culture. And um, it's, it's very scary, but it's just the next thing. Uh, it's the next thing that we have to deal with. And you know what'll happen? We'll get through it. Okay, the, the scriptures, the authority of scripture will rise back to the surface and um, we'll get back on track. So we don't have that problem here. Okay? And we won't uh, with the leadership that's here. Okay? Now, if you begin to see it, 
uh, rebuke it, and if it's not corrected, go to another church. Okay? I don't, I don't have any problem saying that to anyone. Uh, if this leadership here will not stick to the authority of Scripture, um, go elsewhere. All right? Go elsewhere. So be that as it may, uh, I, the, it's the simplicity here of what Paul is saying. If you're a new creation, if you, if you are a new creation, the work of redemption, the miracle of regeneration, it has occurred in your life by the Holy Spirit. You belong to Jesus. And nothing can improve that, right? Nothing can improve the perfection and righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to you. And there's nothing that can diminish it. I love that. That's it. Verse 16. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So as many as walk according to this rule, uh, the canon, it's the word that is used there, canon, I'm not sure how to say it, a canon is a reed that, that specifically grew in Egypt. And the interesting thing about that reed is they almost all grow to the exact same length. So it was used for many different reasons to create a standard. And that's what Paul says here. He says, as many as walk according to this standard, okay, anybody that embraces it, the, the truthfulness of it, uh, in terms of redemption, uh, he's saying that's it's all that matters. Okay, a new creation. If you're, if you're circumcised or not, it's completely irrelevant and consequential. All are saved by grace, through faith. Uh, that's the canon. Okay? That's the standard. There's no other contributing factors to a redemption. Now, perhaps you've heard the term used in regard to the scriptures, the canon of scripture. Have you heard that? It's an old word that uh, the, the ancient theologians were using as well, but the canon is only this big. It's Genesis to Revelation, nothing else. Okay, nothing more. And that's the same as in terms of our salvation. These are the things that make for it, and everything, everything else is excluded. It's by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, what he's done on the cross for our sins. That's it. That's the canon. That's the standard. Yeah. And Paul says, upon these rest the peace and mercy of God. No one else, because they're not fitted within that standard. Get it? That's it. And if you're in the standard, it really doesn't get any better than that. Okay, I'd like to consider more closely the last phrase of the verse there. Because we can't do anything without being controversial. Paul says, Peace and mercy be upon everyone who embraces this rule and upon the Israel of God. What does the last phrase mean? The Israel of God. The Israel of God. Now, there has been no small disagreement uh, among Bible teachers and scholars regarding the identity of this particular group. Uh, and and it, there's differences from all varieties of theology out there, every camp, denomination, or whatever. Um, and as you've probably guessed, I have a position. <laughs> so here we go. The phrase here is only used this one time in all of Scripture. One time in all of Scripture. But in spite of its singular use here, Many have gotten a lot of mileage out of it and have come to some interesting conclusions. It actually reminds me of what happens quite often in paleontology after a bone is dug out of the dirt. The paleontologist who discovered the bone hires an artist who then makes an entire village of Neanderthals out of one or two bones. It's very impressive. Like Nebraska Man. How many of you guys have heard of Nebraska Man? Uh, only a tooth was found a tooth, and from it was constructed a whole family of these bipedal 
ancient-looking creatures. But then it was discovered later that the tooth belonged to a pig. <laughs> now, if you don't know, there's Nebraska man, there's Piltdown man. I mean, paleontology you know, is just filled with lies and stuff, and a lot of plaster of Paris, and it's all kinds of talk about creative license. Yeah. I think that that's what happened, has happened, is happening to this phrase, the Israel of God. Some believe that the Israel of God is the church, or the church is now the Israel of God. This doctrine is called replacement theology. Replacement theology. For you theologians, it's called supersecessionism. Say that with me. Supersecessionism. Okay, it doesn't matter. Forget about it. <laughs> it, it essentially... It's a, Poor trick that pastors play on people. It essentially says that the church has taken the place of Israel as the people of God. Uh, the church has replaced them or succeeded them as God's people. Now, I have to be honest. For me, that is one of the strangest doctrines held by Christians today. I don't mean to be critical. I just don't get it. Okay? I can't wrap my head around it for a number of reasons. I'm going to give you just a couple I, I don't know why it's important to some. I just don't understand. Unless they believe that the Old Covenant and its particular promises apply to the church, which cannot be defended in the New Testament. That's what we've been talking about for the last four years from the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians. Also, there's nothing in the language of that verse that demands that interpretation that, Israel, that the Israel of God is the church. No other passage in the New Testament supports it. Many hold this position because of their view uh, on the end times. And, and I think we'll get into some of that uh, in a couple of weeks because it came out of my mouth last week. Uh, but it's actually not required for many views of what we call eschatology, the end times. Okay? For, for example, the amillennial position. Some of you are saying, what's amillennial? Um, I hope you don't care, actually. But it, it doesn't have to be held to be consistent with amillennialism. I know tons of amillennialists who do not hold this position. It's not required. It does flow out of what is called the postmillennial view, but that's not a very common view. So let me tell you how I believe the text should be interpreted, and then I'll tell you why and why it's important. Paul is saying that this rule applies to as many as walk in step with it, and or including the Israel of God. I think including is the best way to see the word and. Okay, now they say, well, it could also be translated even. Okay, well, it could be. And what they're saying is even, or as the NIV is so presumptuously bold in translation, they put a dash there. I think it's an extreme error by the, the translators. And, I, and it also comes, uh, I don't believe it comes from the... Just, just translating the text, it comes from their theological bias. And that's dangerous in translation. Just translate the language and leave it alone. Okay? Let the context determine what something means. Amen? Yeah. Including. I mean, why would Paul even say the Israel of God? Why not just say everyone? Yeah. That would include everyone who believes the gospel. The addition makes no sense unless he's talking about an additional distinct group. So why add it? Let me start with this. In this epistle to the Galatians, Paul has been, he's been pretty blunt regarding these Jewish, that is, Israeli false teachers. 
even hoping they would castrate themselves. He says those who maintain the beliefs of the Judaizers are accursed. He said that their view of the gospel estranges people from Christ, and so on. And he says anybody who preaches their gospel, he says let them be accursed. Let them be accursed. Very strong language. It's almost as if when you're reading it that Paul holds out no hope for these Jews. One might think because of who they are and for what they've done, they are permanently excluded from God's peace and mercy. But Paul says that God's peace and mercy is extended to all who walk according to this rule, including the Israel of God. The Israel of God, then, is every Israeli who repents and believes on Christ for salvation, apart from the law of Moses, which was the debate being settled by Paul here in Galatians. So the Israel of God is not a reference to the church or to Gentile believers, but to the remnant of Jews who believe in Christ. The Israel of God are Jewish believers. Also, this use of Israel as an ethnic identity is consistent everywhere in Scripture. Everywhere in Scripture. Every time the word Israel is used, it's always ethnic. And it's used over 2,500 times that way in the Bible. For what reason would you change the the definition here in Galatians 6.16? That would be odd to me. Be odd to me. Common knowledge recognized that Israel was an ethnic identity. And so the Israel of God could only represent those ethnic Israelis who believe on Christ for salvation. The Israel of God, that's a believing Jew. Consider some other passages with me that people have turned to to uh, try to reconcile replacement theology with these verses. According to Paul in Romans 11, the church has been grafted in among believing Israelis, which Paul says is a remnant. But we have not become, and he does not say that, we've not become Israel, we've not replaced them or succeeded them, we've only joined them. We've only joined them. They have maintain their ethnic identity, even after coming to faith in Christ, and we have not acquired their identity by coming to Christ. Now, some people, after, uh, after reading Romans 11, believe that we Gentiles have been grafted into Israel. I hear this all the time. The church has been grafted into Israel. Have you heard that? Yeah. Grafted into Israel. Now, that isn't exactly replacement theology. That's more like absorption theology. Okay. But a lot of the the conclusions that people come to, the results are the same as replacement theology. But when people read Romans 11, they need to slow down a little bit for what the text actually says. Uh, The error that people make concerns the identity of the olive tree. The olive tree. Those who believe that we've been grafted into Israel, they believe that Israel is the olive tree. That's not what the text says. Israel is identified not as the tree, but as the natural branches that grew out of the olive tree. That's verse 21. The believing Gentiles are identified as a wild branch that is grafted into the olive tree among the remnants of believing Jews, that is, the natural branches. Okay, others were cut off because of unbelief. So the Gentiles are never said to be grafted into the natural branches. That would mean that we were grafted into Israel. Okay? We are grafted into the olive tree alongside of them. So what's the olive tree? All right, whose phone is that? (laughs) Man, we love you, Steve. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) Lost my place. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So what is the olive tree? 
What is the olive tree? Verse 17 through 18 and verse 21 and 22 of Romans 11, Paul identifies the root and the olive tree as God, whom I would much rather be grafted into. Okay. He says, from whom the branches are nourished or by whom the branches are removed. Israel doesn't have that power. Only God has that power. So God is the olive tree. Israel, they're the natural branches. The Gentiles, the wild branches. In this illustration, the Gentile believing community is distinct. They're distinct from, the, from believing Israel. There's no distinction in how one or the other is saved, but neither is, a distinction among, is there a distinction among men and women in regard to how they are saved. That's the argument that's often used, but no one, at least in the scriptures, is saying there's no distinction between the sexes. Now, that argument will not work in our culture, but it works in the scriptures. Amen? We're different, right? Okay, we're different. Yeah. So all these distinctions remain, and so it is for us to figure out why and what the implications are. And we need to be careful not to do this from our particular theology. We have to learn this from the scriptures themselves. Now, in the New Testament, and it's really important that the church has no connection to Israel. Okay? No connection. No relationship. We have not replaced or succeeded them. We haven't been grafted into them. Uh, we're not the recipients of their covenant promises. And we have no responsibility to the covenant made with them as a people group. We have our own. Okay? In the New Testament, we are only said to be related to Abraham. And the difference is huge. Abraham is the father of everyone who believes, whether Jew or Gentile. Now, Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians chapter 3. And what is important about this as Paul points out, our relationship to Abraham precedes circumcision and the covenant of Moses, which excludes us from it. That's Paul's argument. But if we're related to Israel, to whom the covenant of Sinai was committed, we then become the constituents of that covenant and the law of Moses. But that is contrary to everything taught in the New Testament. And if you need evidence for that, as I said, I've spent the last four and a half years or so talking about that from the book of Hebrews and the book of Galatians. Okay. Let me turn your attention to one more passage, and then I'll move on. In Romans chapter 2, verses 7 through 29, Paul is correcting Jews about their misconceptions about redemption. And he says this, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. That's Romans 2, 28 through 29. Some people read into this, interpreting the text to mean that anyone who is circumcised of the heart in the spirit, and not according to the letter, not according to the letter of the law, is a Jew. Really? You're a Jew? I don't think so. Paul never says that. He's correcting the Jewish notion that being circumcised as a Jew secures your salvation. That's what he's saying. Jews held the idea that they were saved by virtue of being Jewish and because they had the sign of the covenant in their flesh. Yeah. But like Galatians, Paul is talking about the necessity of becoming a new creation, which is a work done in the heart by the Holy Spirit. He calls that work the circumcision of the heart. So what he's saying is, is a true Jew, as it were, then is a Jew who trusts in Christ for salvation rather than a Jew who is trusting in their circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses. Paul's essentially saying the same thing uh, that he said in Galatians 6.16. The only real difference is that the word Israel is substituted for the word Jew. You get it? Saying the same thing, just with a different word. In both places, it's ethnic Jews, it's ethnic 
Israel. Those who believe in Christ are saved. Those are the Israel of God. They've been circumcised in the heart. Okay? Those who do not trust in Christ, Paul would say, they're as well off as a pagan. That's true of everyone. So let me conclude with this. Jews, Israel, it's always an ethnic designation in the scriptures. And how they differ from one another, that is, believing Jews and non-believing Jews, is salvation. Jews, Israel, never refer to the church or Gentiles. Okay? This will be addressed further uh, in a couple weeks, uh, but I think that's enough for now. That text should be understood as two different groups, okay? a distinction between them. It's in addition to this, the Israel of God is what Paul is saying. Let's move on in the text. And I'm running out of time here. Verse 17, he says, For now on, let no one trouble me. Just leave me alone. <laughs> For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I think what Paul is saying is, he's saying, look, enough has been said. A clear defense of the gospel has been given. Okay? The gospel of grace. He's saying, I just don't want to be bothered with this anymore. Saying to the church, it's time, get anchored in the gospel, the truth of the word, don't tolerate anything else. You guys need to grow up, he's saying, and uh, get the heretics out and keep the truth, maintain it. And he's saying, I've taken enough beatings for Christ. And as you look at Paul's life, he took beatings from those within, he took beatings from those without, from his own countrymen, from the Greeks, from the Romans. Paul lived a life of steady beatings. He says, I'm just, enough is enough. Enough is enough. And with that said, there's nothing left to say but farewell. Verse 18, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So Paul appropriately signs off with the grace of God, seeing that the entire letter has been a refutation regarding the imposition of the law of Moses okay, on, on the believer. So the gospel of Christ, that is the gospel of grace. Galatians 2.21, the believer is not under the law, Galatians 3, 24 through 25. And now the life we live in Christ is energized by grace as we submit to the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 16 through 26. We are not saved by our own worthiness or righteousness. There's no amount of good deeds that we can do to be forgiven and accepted by God. Man is helpless to affect his own salvation. Christ must intervene on our behalf by means of of atonement. Amen? That's the gospel of grace. Paul says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up to the cross for our offenses, and then he was risen because of our justification. I didn't play a lot of parts in there. I just trusted him for it. Amen? All right. That does it for the epistle to the Galatians. Um, next week, we'll explore, as I said, some of the other covenants in Scripture and why they're important to us today. Uh, what the implications are for the future, and then that will naturally uh, lead into some end-time stuff, uh, which always encourages my heart, especially as we see the day approaching. Amen? Okay.